Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Trailhead. And uh, today, we're going to be starting a new series. Uh, This is our summer series, and we're going to be in the book of Psalms. We haven't done an extended series in Psalms for a long time, so we're excited this summer to kind of get an opportunity to, uh, to spend some time in the Psalms and reflecting on what they mean to us. We'll talk a little bit more about where we're going with that this morning. But if you would, join me in Psalm 96. That's going to be our text for this morning. Psalm 96. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be a hardback one under one of the seats in front of you, so you can grab that. And um, turn to page 499. 499 in the hardback Bibles, Psalm 96. If you would follow along with me as I read. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. And let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The word of the Lord. All right. um, I want to start this morning by uh, sharing with you a, a new word. Actually, it's new to me. You might all know this. Okay, that's always the danger if I get up and I'm like, hey, I got something really exciting, and you're all like, we've heard that a bazillion times before, but to me, this is new. Okay, so just humor me if you already know this, but I'm going to talk about this word neuroplasticity. I just learned this word recently, and um, it's really an interesting idea, an interesting concept. Let me explain what neuroplasticity is. Neuroplasticity is the ability of your brain to physically change. Okay, and what what it means or the impact of it or the, the, the kind of the concept behind this is the things that you do actually change the physical structure of your brain. And the more you do something, the more your brain changes and adapts. Okay, so when you think about the phrase changing your mind about something, usually we think of that in a very like metaphorical sense. I changed my mind means I was thinking something, I'm, I'm thinking something different now. Neuroplasticity is the idea that you literally can change your physical mind. In fact, when I say can change, you do change your mind. The more you do something, the more your brain shifts to do that thing. And so what happens, and I'm not a scientist, and you would all say, obviously. But um, the way I understand this is, as much as I can understand this, the way our brain works is we have what are called neurons, and they travel along what are called neural pathways. And the more that you do something, when you do something, or say something, or think something, those neurons fire in different ways, and they make connections, and they fire together, and they create different paths. 
The more you do the same thing or think the same thing or say the same thing, the more they continue to make those same connections in your brain, the more set they become. So the more you do something, here's the point. Hopefully this is making sense. I hope this makes sense too because I feel like I'm rambling. But the more you do something, the easier it becomes for you to go in that direction. The the best metaphor I have heard explained is like this. Imagine your brain is like a really thick, dense jungle. Okay, Because obviously right now I sound like my brain is a thick, dense jungle. But if your brain is a thick, dense jungle, and every choice you make, everything you do, you're clearing out a path through that thick, dense jungle, right? Well, the more you go over that same path over and over, the easier it becomes to go through that path. This makes sense, right? So the more you make certain choices, the more you develop certain habits, the easier they are to go through. And to change to go in a different direction, to think something different or do something different requires a lot more effort because you already have a clear path, right? This is why it's so hard to break a habit. There's a physiological reason. If you have a habit that you have established and and you've told yourself before, like, I don't like this habit, I'm just not going to do that anymore, you know that's really, really hard. Here's the good news. It's not because you're weak, and it's not because you don't have enough willpower. It's because there's a physiological reason. When you develop a habit, you have rewired your brain to want to go in a certain direction. This is like minor things. You've wired your brain because you've done it so many times. There's a reason that when you brush your teeth, you do it either the top first and then the bottom, or the bottom and then the top, or you squeeze the tube of toothpaste the way that you do. Either you squeeze it on the top or you squeeze it on the bottom. And you got married, and and you and your spouse had this huge argument about, why are you squeezing it like that? You're supposed to squeeze it like this. And you're like, and both of you, because you were so loving and because you were just married, you were like, I'll change. But you can't. Why not? Because when you grab a tube of toothpaste, your brain's been wired to squeeze it in a certain way, right? That's not just true for minor stuff. That's minor stuff. That's not just true for our like, little daily habits. It's also true for the way we think. Our thoughts run in certain ways. We react in relationships in certain ways because we've trained our minds to do them. When you get into a difficult situation, your brain has been trained over time to react in a specific way. And you catch yourself, you do this, I do this. You find yourself doing something and think, why am I doing this? Why do I always do this? Why am I holding my phone right now and scrolling through this? I don't want to be doing this, but I am. Why? Because my brain has been wired over and over and over. I've, I've cleared this specific path that I just keep going back to over and over. But, the term neuroplasticity doesn't just say, it doesn't just tell us, it's, it's, the idea is not just that our brains become set in a way that is unchangeable. The plasticity means they're moldable. They can change. You can change your mind. Like physically, you can rewire your brain. You can cut new paths through that thick jungle in your head. It's just really, really slow work. It takes a lot of time. 
training yourself, and I'm not like recommending you should do this, but, but training yourself to like start shaving on the other side of your face would actually take a whole lot of effort, a lot of conscious thought and a lot of time because you've trained yourself in a specific way. It's really slow. What does any of this have to do with Psalms? I know you're wondering. This idea of neuroplasticity, this idea of training our brains to think differently, to interact with people differently, to do things differently, it applies to our growth as believers as well, our growth in grace, our discipleship, our interactions, I already said, our relationships with other people. The way we think in our brains Where we go mentally in different situations, we can change it, but it's slow. It's really, really slow work. We've said this over and over again. We we talk about this, that that growing in grace, growing as believers, what we often call discipleship, is not just about knowing more information and doing right things, The problem in our discipleship and the problem in growing in grace is that we are bent in the wrong direction. We have desires for good things, good desires that have been placed inside of us by God. But those desires are bent to go in the wrong direction. And we've trained our minds and our hearts over time to pursue what is good and right in the wrong way. And we develop those wrong paths, those bent desires over and over and over by going back to them and going back to them and going back to them. And the idea that we want to change those broken paths, change our desires to move in a different direction is not simple. How do we change broken or bent desires? Now the first and the true, this is true, the first answer to that is that only God can change our hearts. That is true and that is right. But, and we've said this before as well, we as believers are not passive in that process. God will change and God can change our hearts. But he does it in a way that he invites us to be a part of. So kind of the paradoxical question here. If God is more concerned with our hearts, with us loving him, with us desiring him, and only he can change our hearts, Only he is able to make a transformation in our deepest part of our beings. How can I, how can we be active in that transformation? If it's something only God can do, is that saying that we as Christians just sit back and say, well, God, change me. But we see throughout Scripture God telling us, here are things you should do. You should live in this way. The gospel leads you towards this. And if we have no part to play, then why does he even tell us? Why doesn't he just change us? 
What do we do? What is our role? How do we go about being a part of God changing not just what we do, but how we feel, how we think, changing our very hearts? That change, that growth, is slow. It takes a lot of time. It's not simply a matter And I wish it was, especially as a preacher, I wish it was a matter of you come to church, I preach a sermon, you go, I like that, and you go out and you change. That would be great. That would be a lot of pressure on me, right, to get the sermon right. Um, But at the same time, that's not the way it works. You don't don't come to church or, or read a book, read a Bible verse, and you make a decision that's it. I'm not going to... I've been lying, and then I read this, this Bible verse that said I shouldn't lie. I'm not lying anymore. Our marriage is a mess. The pastor talked about how that's coming from my own selfishness, and I need to, we need to have this mutual submission in our marriage. Good. Boom. We're done. And the next day, everything's fixed. You know, I'm struggling with temptation. And then the pastor talked about overcoming temptation, and I never was tempted again. It just doesn't work that way. It's a slow, slow process. I have absolutely no delusion that any sermon, especially this one, will change your life. It's not going to happen. And we've said this before at Trailhead as well. Our philosophy of preaching is just to kind of drip, drip, drip the gospel. Almost like an IV. Just constantly, here's the gospel, here's the gospel, here's the gospel. It's not big, it's not flashy. I have, I have no, you know, notion that you're going to come in, hear a sermon, and walk away and be like, everything is different now. Everything has changed. Could God do that? Absolutely, he could. But what I do, what Steve does when we preach, is we just come and say, here's the gospel again. Here's the gospel again. Here's the gospel again. And what we encourage and what we ask or what we beg or what we invite or whatever word you want to use for you to be transformed is to lean into the gospel. What does that mean? What does it mean to lean into God's love for us? What does it mean to rest in his grace? Those kinds of phrases that sometimes people get really frustrated because if you're one of those people who likes a list, who likes instructions, who likes just tell me exactly what I need to do, and then I preach and here's the gospel. Lean into that. You're like, what does that mean, right? How do we over time repeatedly lean into the gospel grow in grace remind ourselves of God's grace and mercy and love well if it's true that every action that we make and every thought that we think is a neuron firing and creating a neural pathway if we're constantly wiring and rewiring our brains, then the slow task for us as Christians is to rewire our brains in such a way that they lead us down paths of mercy and grace instead of leading us to lies that lead to the dead ends that we keep running into. You all have things you would love to change. All of us have things about ourselves that we wish were different. 
but we keep going in directions that keep leading us to those dead ends. And so it's slow work, very slow work, to rewire, to rebuild the paths that lead us in the direction of life, the direction of grace, the direction of mercy. I believe that's where the Psalms come in for us this summer. See, this was all leading somewhere, I, I, I told you. The Psalms are unlike any, most other books in the Bible. So just by way of introduction as we approach this, the Psalms are not, most books in what we call books in the Bible were written as a single cohesive like unit. Like we've been spending a bunch of time in Romans. Romans is a letter. It's one letter that was written by one guy, Paul, at a specific time to a specific church. The Psalms are not like that. The Psalms are 150 different songs that were written over a span of, some scholars think over a span of as much as a thousand years. Different songs that were written for the nation of Israel to sing together, some for very specific occasions, and we might get into that, and some just in general as worship and praise to God. And then they've been compiled together, they were compiled together into this one sort of uh, song book, if you want to call it that. 150 separate songs that all speak to different experiences and different emotions, different feelings, but all centered around God. Worshiping God, praising God, lamenting before God, calling out to God for help. 150 different songs. Songs that we as believers, are now invited to sing with believers throughout the ages. Every day, we have thought patterns in our minds that are basically the songs we're singing to ourselves. We have rhythms in our lives that lead us in certain directions. You go through your life And whether it's on a daily basis, an hourly basis, a weekly basis, there are certain rhythms and patterns of your life. Those rhythms and patterns aren't just things you determine to do, but they are things that determine and tell you what is true and what is real and what is good and what is important. What you do in your life establishes what you believe in your mind. When we come to the Psalms, and we're invited, like Psalm 96 starts and says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, we're invited to sing to ourselves the truth. Not as we've always known it, not as our culture defines it, or as we want it to be, but the truth as God reveals it to be. We have patterns, we have beliefs, we have stories, we have to use this word again, songs that we are constantly singing to ourselves. What are those songs telling us? Where are they coming from? Because they're shaping us. What are the patterns and the habits and the ways that you live your life? What are they leading you towards? What are they teaching you is important? Are they true? As we dig into the Psalms this summer, I want to invite you 
to come to the Psalms not like a letter to be studied, like Romans, not like a narrative, like there's a bunch of, of scripture that's telling stories, but they're not a narrative to dissect. They're not like other passages in scripture. They're songs. They're songs to be savored, to be taken in, to be listened to on repeat. When you hear a song that you like, and you listen to it over and over and over again, and it gets into your head. Have you ever had that experience of you, you're here, you hear a song, and it's a song that you haven't heard for years, but it comes on and you start singing along, and suddenly you realize you know like every single word to that song. That's happening, and you're like, how did that happen? Because you didn't sit down with a sheet of lyrics and try to memorize it. You just heard it so often that it's, it's seeped into your brain. The rhythm and the poetry and the, and the repetition sealed it inside you, and it's there. That's what I want to invite you to do this summer with the Psalms, to seal the truth, God's truth, into your brain. To let the rhythms of God's grace settle into your brain so that those are the paths that your mind goes down. I wanted to start with Psalm 96 today because it, it kind of leans into this exact theme. This idea of singing a different kind of song. Of letting our, our minds, our, our hearts, our rhythms be shaped by a song that's focused on the glory and the goodness of God. It starts with this invitation. In fact, the whole psalm is basically an invitation. It's an invitation to sing the praises of our God. Now I want to give you two quick thoughts um, as we dig into what's actually here and as we approach the Psalms in general. Like I said, they're very different from other passages of Scripture. And so a couple things that I think we need to keep in mind. Number one, they're songs. We don't have the sheet music, right? So like as much as we could say, like it would be great to sing the Psalms, we don't know exactly how they were originally sung. We just don't, it's, it's lost to history. We have the lyrics. Um, parts of the songs won't translate to us as musical. These are, again, translations. These were originally written in Hebrew. And so some elements of poetry will come through. There are elements of poetry that we, that we will be able to see, like the figurative language, repetition, and we'll see that. Some of it simply won't because they don't sound the same translated into English as they would have sounded in Hebrew. Okay, so that's one thing to keep in mind. The second thing, though, is this. They are poetry. They're, they're music, and, and that music is poetic. Because they're not narratives, they're not expository writing, then we're not always going to move through them in the same kind of chronological way we would study a different kind of passage of Scripture. So like Romans, we're going to go verse by verse because Paul says this, and it leads to this, and we can just follow the train of thought, and it's important to get it all in order and every single word and all that. That's, that's not exactly what we're looking at here. Okay. Uh, instead, what we're going to do, or usually what we'll do, is we'll look at an entire psalm, an entire song, and we'll see themes, we'll see language, we'll see ideas developed through it but it's going to be in a different sort of way than what you would be used to probably, like I said, like in Romans or if we read a story in, you know, First Chronicles or something like that, okay? So with that in mind, Psalm 96 is an invitation. 
It's an invitation to sing praises to God. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Why would we want to do that? Why, if our lives are shaped by the songs we sing to ourselves, by our rhythms, by our habits, why would we want our lives to be shaped, to be bent towards God? There's two themes that the psalmist develops as he's making this invitation throughout this song, two reasons that are really compelling for why we would want our lives to sing songs towards God instead of towards whatever else it may be. The first theme that we see developed in here is this. We worship God, we sing to him, we give him praise, quite simply because he is better than anything else we could worship. And how he says it, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name. Look at, skip down to verse 4. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Now, we believe David, by the, I didn't even say this. So we believe this psalm was written by King David, who was the king of Israel at the time. We believe um, that David wrote this, and if so, he wrote this at a time when Israel was surrounded by nations that didn't worship one single God. The, the nation of Israel worshiped one God, Yahweh, and that God had told them, I am the only God, I'm the only true God, I'm the only real God. But because of their interactions with surrounding cultures, a lot of the Israelites worshiped other gods as well. And David is singing to them and saying, we need to worship that one God because he's the only one true God. That all the other gods are not even real. Verse 5, what he says, they're worthless idols. They're not even real. Now that's historical context, but we, we still struggle with this ourselves. We may not use the terminology of other gods, but we certainly have other idols in our lives. Other things that we believe will give us satisfaction. Other things that we, again, have bent desires that lead us towards that if I could just have more money, I would be satisfied. If I could just have a better relationship, I would be satisfied. If I could just create an image where I have more approval and people look at me and tell me I'm good, I would be satisfied. And we come to worship our own image. We come to worship financial success. We come to worship security. We come to worship these things that our lives then become bent towards because we've convinced ourselves that's the thing that will satisfy me. And if I can just put everything I have into getting that, achieving that, then that will make me whole. And because we believe that, we move toward that, and the more we move toward that, the more we're shaped to believe that. And it just keeps us moving in the same direction. And it's why, it's why, when you read one verse in the Bible or you hear one sermon that goes against it, it might jar you mentally, but it doesn't just automatically flip you over in a different direction. 
If you're living your entire life with the idea, and it's become set over time, that financial success will make you feel secure, will make you feel loved, will satisfy you, one sermon about greed is not going to change your entire life. It might unsettle you. It might make you feel uncomfortable. It might, by God's grace, even push you more in the right direction, but you have patterns built into your life that if you don't break, if you don't consciously move away from, you're just going to keep moving back towards. We all have ideals and ideas of what will satisfy us. We worship those things. We train our lives towards those things. Often those idols develop very naturally by the paths we go down over and over and over again. And what happens is we convince ourselves that those are the paths to life. We go down them over and over, but the psalm here says that those things that we want the most, verse number six, splendor and majesty, strength and beauty, those things we want the most are not found in the idols we keep going to. Splendor and majesty are before him. God. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. That the true satisfaction, the true joy, the true abundance of life is not found in the idols we are pursuing. It's found in God. And specifically, and I love the use of this word, found in his sanctuary. Sanctuary the place of safety, the place of rest. We get satisfaction, we get joy, we get strength, we get beauty, we get splendor, not from working to achieve, but from resting in God. Our invitation is not to work more for God, but to rest in God him. Throughout this psalm, it establishes that God is awesome, he's powerful, he's mighty. Look, in verse 8, ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Verse 9 says, tremble before him all the earth. Verse 10 says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. He's a mighty God. He's strong, he's powerful. When we rightly see him, we would tremble before him because of his good power and his might and his justice but it's also saying that we can find satisfaction with him by resting with him in a place of safety that God's call to us is come be safe with me this this awesome mighty powerful God that everyone else trembles before and we see throughout scripture the admonition the There is a fear of God that is a good and healthy thing. God is awesome, mighty, powerful. He's just. But his invitation is to come and rest with him. How can we do that? How can we find joy by resting with such a powerful and mighty God? And that's the second theme that's developed throughout this psalm. Not only is God better than our idols but he is our rescuer. He's our salvation. It's how the song starts. 
In verse 2, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. He's powerful and he's mighty. We are not. If we just look at his power and his might, then we're, then we're going to tremble before him. Because he's a righteous judge. Judgment is a theme throughout. Verse number 10. Say among the nations the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Verse 13 says this. For he, the Lord, comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. We worship a God of justice. A God who is going to judge this world. And that's a good thing. Sometimes when we talk about God being just, God judging the world, sometimes we can be afraid of that idea. I don't... Oftentimes in our culture, the song our culture sings is no one should judge anyone else. That's not true at all. We all judge each other constantly, nonstop. We're all judging each other. But when we talk about a God who judges, sometimes we can feel a little bit uneasy about that. But the truth is we want justice. We want a God who will look into this broken world and do what is right. Verses 11 and 12. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills, us, let, fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. The psalm is saying the entire world, the entire physical world is crying out for God to come and judge and set right what is wrong. We live in a broken world. It's reminded of that just last night, this morning. I don't know if you saw the news, but and I don't know the full story of everything that happened, but I was heartbroken that from what we understand in Buffalo, New York last night, an 18-year-old man walked into a grocery store and opened fire and killed 10 people motivated by hatred based on the color of their skin. This is not the way the world is meant to be. We need justice. We need the world to be set right. When we look at the world around us, when we see the evil around us, we want justice. The problem with that is we know that if God judges with equity, like it says in verse 10, he will judge the peoples with equity, we know that we would be in just as much trouble. This is a broken world, but we are broken people who live in it. I'm not, like verse 13 says, I'm not righteous. And I'm not always faithful. And I look at myself, let alone the broken world around me, I look at myself 
And I say, if God is coming to judge in righteousness, I don't stand a chance. I'm too broken. But look at what the song says. Verse 13. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. What the song is telling us and reminding us of is this. God doesn't judge us based upon our own righteousness. He judges based upon his faithfulness. And this is what verse 2 is referring to, his salvation. That God sent Jesus because of our failure to be righteous. He sent Jesus because of our unfaithfulness. He sent Jesus to fulfill God's law, to be righteous. And then to take our punishment, to take our judgment on himself so that we could be declared righteous even though we're not he declares us righteous because we trust in Jesus we're joined to him and so his sacrifice for us is counted justice for us simply by trusting in his sacrifice the sacrifice he made on our behalf we are declared righteous we are saved and that is the salvation that we sing drip 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 because you're sitting there you're like Aaron we've heard this okay this this psalm God is better than idols Jesus took my judgment for my sin I've heard that if you've been at trailhead you have heard both of those themes probably a lot If this is your first Sunday here, we're so glad you're here. You're going to hear this a lot, okay? It's it's what we preach. In fact, you're probably sitting there thinking, that's all you ever preach. Yes. Yes, it is. Do you know why I do it? I do it for myself. Sorry, that sounded really selfish, but it's true. I need to hear this over and over and over again. Because I need these truths to sink down into my soul. Because I find myself running to different songbooks to try to find different songs that will fix me, that will put things right, that will give me satisfaction. I'm surrounded by a culture that's telling me, here's what will give you satisfaction, here's what will give you joy, here's where you can find justice, and I find within myself the desire to go in any other direction, to find satisfaction, to find joy. What I need, what I need day to day, as he says in verse 2, day to day, I need to hear this song. I need to believe this song. This new song that says that Jesus is better. That says that Jesus is my Savior. That says that Jesus saved me by his grace. I have to hear that song over and over and over. I have to be singing that song over and over and over. We all sing. 
We all have a song or songs running through our minds telling us what is true and what is good and what is right. The question I want to ask you is what song are you singing? What is leading you? What truths are you believing? What narrative is driving your life? Is it the song of God's salvation? Is it the song of a holy God who is better than any other option? Now, I'm not saying this, please. I'm not trying to guilt you, okay? We all, all go in different directions. We all have our brains bent in the wrong way. But our invitation, our invitation is to sing a new song to sing a true song. So today, normally we have reflection questions. I have some reflection questions, but this is a little different than normal. We'll have a short time, um, but I don't want you to just think about a question for like three minutes and then go out. I want to actually invite you to, to do a little bit of an exercise, okay? And so if you, in fact, um, we'll put the questions up on the screen but it might be beneficial for you to write them down. If you've got a bulletin, there's a blank space on the back, and some people ask, why is this blank space here? It's for you to take notes. And so it'd be a great place you could write this down on your bulletin, or if you want to just snap a picture with your phone or whatever. This is a question that I want, or questions that I want you to ask yourself this week, because it's going to take a little bit of time to think through. What songs are you singing? What, in your, what are your daily rhythms? What are the habits that you've developed? You don't even think about them. And that's why this is actually asking you to, to put some thought into this. As you go through your day, as you go through your week, what are the habits and the rhythms that are shaping your life? What are the things that you just do, like you get in the car and you flip on what? Or you wake up in the morning and the first thing you reach for is what? Or you get home from work and the first direction you walk towards is where? Like what are the things that you are doing Daily, And then this question, what are those rhythms teaching you or leading you to believe and to love and to pursue? Oh, it's just a habit. It's mindless. It doesn't really mean anything. I just scroll through Twitter. It's not a big deal. Really, though, what is that scrolling doing? What is it telling you? What is it saying is important? What is it teaching you? It's a little bit of, you know, self-analysis. I think you can handle it for a week. It'll Just do it this week, and then you'll never have to do this again, I promise. But... Just a thought. What rhythms are shaping your life? What songs are you singing? We'll take a moment to kind of reflect, write that down, and then we'll share communion together. So let's just take just a moment.